0: You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Oh, well, it's good to have you guys here this morning. My name's uh, Nick. If I've had the chance to meet you. I'm the lead pastor. And today, uh, we're, we're in the middle of a series that... Uh, We've called Confessions of a Cynical Christian. You might be like, what did I walk into? Um, I'm just gonna spend the next 45 minutes just complaining at you. Uh, so just hold on, I'm just joking. Um, you guys can laugh a little bit, it's all right. Uh, why, are we, why are we talking about this? Like, what, what does this have to do with anything? There's a quote I came uh, across by C.S. Lewis that I think sums it up. Uh, and he, he said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If, but, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And uh, throughout these three weeks, we're talking about kind of the questions that sometimes through culture and through experience and through life that we cynically come to with what, what we're taught about Christianity or what we see or observe about Christianity. And, and sometimes the questions uh, can bump up against what we're experiencing, what we're sensing or what we're walking through. And, and as I, we talked about last week, the most important thing about uh, the pursuit of faith is the pursuit of truth, that we don't stop at questions, but we keep pursuing. And, uh, and, and today, last week we talked about it's all fake, and today we wanna talk about uh, how haters just hate. And you know, we live in a pretty crazy world. We live in a world uh, that has, uh, where it's not only become accepted, but popular to hate. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Uh, we now have an entire media industry built on who you hate. From social media to news media, <clears throat> who you like and who you hate defines the channels you watch and what you see in your in, in the posts. And You see whether it's a news feed, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or, or threads or whatever you, TikTok, whatever you watch. Uh, and, and, and for those of you that would call yourself a Christian, the calling to love can seem so trite and even disconnected from what we see happening in our world. (laughs) Like it seems like one of those little kids' fairy tales that you know isn't true, but you just kind of say it and you recite it. You're like, yeah, we're supposed to love people, but look at our world. Like you can't actually love people in this world, in this setting. And while everyone talks about loving each other, no one actually does. And when you read verses like what Jesus said in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 31, where he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Like when you read verses like that, it can, it, can, it can sound like a nice wish, but really an impossible aim. Whether it's a cynical view that loving others seems pointless when you know, after all, they're gonna hate you anyway. Or if it's an act of self-preservation to avoid being attacked by someone or hurt by someone. Most of us, I think, often can align more than what Jesus said, can align more with the great philosopher Taylor Swift, who once wrote in one of her scholarly publications, because the player's gonna play, 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 and the hater's gonna hate, 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 hate. I'll stop. We don't need the ooh, 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 oohs. Now, when you you think about it, Taylor Swift has a point. When you put her words alongside the words of Jesus to love your neighbor, loving your neighbor seems like this nice concept, but a really impractical pursuit. Like, how is that even possible? And today as we continue our conversations, confessions of a cynical Christian, we want to explore this honest confession that maybe you can relate to, that loving your neighbor and loving loving the neighbor that loves you back, that makes a lot of sense. Of course you do that. But what benefit really is there at loving people who hate you? And you know they're going to hate you. And they're not changing the fact that they hate you. It really seems like a waste of time and energy, like of our effort, Because after all, haters just gonna hate, 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 right? Now, one of the unique things we are doing during this conversation this month is providing the opportunity for you to text in questions throughout the message. This is a chance for kind of a two-way conversation. So as I did last week, at the end of the message today, I'm gonna take some time to respond to uh, as many of the questions as we can that relate to what we're talking about today, the topic we're covering. And uh, if you want, you can text in questions by texting the number which is at the bottom of the screen. Uh, The number is 724-542-2100. So 724-542-2100. You can text in questions that pertain to what we're talking about, you know, not like, Nick, what's your favorite Taco Bell order or, you know, something like that. Uh, You can just ask me that uh, personally if you want and I'll tell you. Uh, Hasn't changed since I was like six, so... Uh, you can ask our staff, they know what it is. Uh, as we talk about this, though, I wanna be upfront with you. I do believe strongly that we should love everyone, uh, even those different from us, even those that hate us. But I do not believe we should do it just because we should do it. I don't believe it's just one of those things that Jesus just, uh, just said, just do it because I said so. I don't know if, you have, if you're kids and you're a parent, you, you may have said that before, like, why do I need to clean my room? Just because I said so. I don't believe Jesus said that we should love our neighbor as ourself just because he said so. I, I, I think actually there's an intent behind it. And it, it's not the intent you might immediately think. To understand this, this command better, what Jesus has asked us to do, and to make sense of maybe the often cynical view we take when others hate us, attack us, or cancel us altogether, we, we need to step back. And I think it's important to better understand the gospel. And you might think, like, what does the gospel have to do with any of this? I would say I mean, it has everything to do with it. It's because our understanding or perspective of what Jesus accomplished on the cross radically changes how we respond to pain, how we act in uncertain moments, and how we ultimately live our lives on a daily basis. And the best verse that sums up this idea of the gospel uh, of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is, is the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16. John 3:16 says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life." Now you may have heard that verse hundreds of times. maybe that's the first time you've heard that verse. Um, but, but that one verse sums up the gospel. It sums up everything that we refer to as the good news. The gospel in the Greek is the euangelion, the the good news that we get to share. What is the good news? It's not not the good news that, man, it's gonna all work out in the end. That's not the good news. The good news is I'm a sinner, meaning I've made mistakes. (laughs) I don't deserve God's love, his forgiveness, and grace, and yet he freely gives it to us anyway. This is the gospel. John 3.16 sums up. and We often read this verse and interpret it as God so loved that he gave, therefore God loved me and I need to give, and I need to give his love. We, we love others so they can experience God's love at work in their lives. And, and while others, uh, while loving others is how maybe someone else can experience God's love, I would argue that loving those that hate us or attack us or don't like us is about far more than just trying to change them, far more than just them trying to experience the love of God. You see, we get this wrong because we often think the gospel is something that was simply done for us. Like, we have no part in it. It it really doesn't affect us other than Jesus just died on the cross for us. Like, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and because of that, I am now forgiven. And, And while that is true, Jesus didn't endure the excruciating pain of crucifixion. He didn't accomplish the impossible task of walking out of the tomb just so we could be forgiven, After all, the entire scope of scripture points to this one moment we call Christ's crucifixion. The moment when Jesus conquers sin, death, and the grave. It is unquestionably the pinnacle of the entire Bible, the pinnacle of all of Christian history. And if the pinnacle of Christianity is just about changing your status from sinner to forgiven, it seems like a pretty big buildup for something that's incredibly simple. I believe rather, though, that the gospel is about something bigger than just what was done for you. And, and here's a simple thought today, that as we walk, walk through this idea of, of loving people and when should we love people, when should we not love people, I think this is important to understand about the gospel. That the gospel isn't simply about what someone has done for you, but what is being developed in you. It's not just about what someone has done for you, but what, what, what is being developed in you. Let me explain this idea with the words of Jesus in in John's gospel. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's the Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible, the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, and, and the first four books of the New Testament are referred to as the gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those gospels are really telling the account of who Jesus is. Uh, what he did, what he accomplished, and why he did those things. And the last of those gospels, John's gospel, in John chapter ten, uh, we read these words of Jesus. And, and in these words, he's he's talking about his role as the good shepherd, and he contrasts how how uh, he. Leads and, and, and interacts with people in, in comparison to the enemy of our soul, Satan, how Satan approaches us. And he's really explaining the importance of the gospel and what the gospel is supposed to accomplish in our lives. Here's what he said in John chapter 10, verse eight. He said, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. And he refers to himself in verse nine. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Can you say Saved. Saved. So, why is he talking about being saved? Because he's talking about, we mentioned a minute ago, like we are fallen people. We make mistakes. The Bible refers to this as sin. And that sin separates us from a perfect holy God. When I was a kid, I was at a a friend's house uh, and we were um, running through mud puddles. We had our bikes and everything and we were covered head to toe in mud, which is a kid, at least a boy's dream and a parent's nightmare. And I remember we're covered head to toe in mud and we wanted to go inside the house. <clears throat> well, that's what you do, you change inside the house, right? But we're covered in head to toe in mud. And my mom, my, uh, and, the, and the people's house we were at, they were like, you are not stepping foot in this house because you are covered from head to toe in mud and you will ruin our house. The carpet, you'll ruin everything. And as a you know, nine, 10 year old, I was like, no I won't. Um, now, you know, as a 41 year old, I'd be like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. We you know what we had to do first? Had to hose us down, and get all the mud off of us. Then we could go in and change. How can we as imperfect people, we have our mistakes, our baggage, all of the stuff that we carry, our sin, the Bible calls, how can we interact with a holy, perfect God? We'll mar him. And, and, and this is what, what, what the gospel's about, that Jesus came not to condemn us and to point his finger at us and tell us how bad we are. I think uh, most of us would agree that we would admit we're not perfect, but he came to save us. And this is what he's talking about in, in John 10. I've come to save. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate. I'm the, the way that you can experience that. And, and then he goes on. Uh, uh, the, the question when I read this, and there's two questions. And, and, and questions in, in your reading scripture are really important. I, I would argue that the, the questions you ask of scripture are almost as important as the the, the scripture you're reading and, and the two questions that I think are important to ask and I kind of answered one already is what are we saved from and what are we saved for and what are we saved from we're saved from our mistakes our fallenness our, our sin we're saved from that but what are we saved for and, and Jesus gets to that in the very next verse he says they will come in and go out and find pasture and, and he's using this analogy of sheep like we're not actually sheep I don't think you're a sheep, I'm not a sheep. But he's using this analogy of sheep. And he said, they will come in to the gates, they'll be saved, and they will find pasture. Which is what sheep exist to do. They are animals that herd together in pastures. They don't run in fear. They don't, they, they're not there just to like try to avoid danger. They don't think about that. They exist to rest in pasture. And this is what God wants. That we are saved, not, not just to be saved, but, but that we could step into what we were created for. And, and then he goes on, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Like this is why Jesus exists, that we could experience the fullness of what we were created for, the fullness of what you were created for, that you were created for, a fullness that you haven't experienced yet. Well, what does that have to do with loving our neighbor? Let me explain. It sounds maybe uh, out there. Uh, if the gospel isn't simply about what, what has been done for you, but what is being developed in you, we are developed most significantly, we grow most significantly when we face difficulty and resistance. Whether it's weight training or running or or any area, we grow the most in every area of our life through resistance. And I would argue that there is nothing more difficult than loving people that you know won't love you back. You know up front, there is no hiding it. They're not gonna love you back, ever. And you, you see, the love we are called to show isn't simply for that person's benefit it is a big part of our own growth and spiritual development. It's because it runs in contrast to the mentality we've often adopted that if I can't change this hateful, difficult person in my life, then why love them at all? But what if loving others isn't about changing them, but what if it's about changing you? What if loving people, loving your neighbor as yourself, isn't so much about them experiencing the life-transforming love of Jesus, which it can, but what if it's more about changing you? And in changing you, I don't mean changing you to be like them, but changing you to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't choose who he loved based on what they did to him or how they responded to him, but he loved and continues to love those that are even enemies to him. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans in his letter to the Romans, we know is the book of Romans, Here's what he said in Romans chapter 8 verse 10, or chapter 5 verse 10. He said, while we, now, do you notice he said we, he didn't say them. While we were God's enemies. You are God's enemy. I was God's enemies. What does that mean? It means we are running in contradiction to God's plan, purpose for our life. We're doing our own thing. You know, when I tell my kids, hey, go do this or go do that, and they go in that direction, and I want them to go in this direction, like, they're going in the wrong direction, they're, they're, they're opposing what I'm asking them to do. While we were literally opposing God's will, his purpose, his plan for our lives, doing our own thing, while we were enemies, it says we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. What does that mean? That the gospel reconciles. It, 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 it takes someone who was an enemy and it brings them together with God. That's what, that's what the gospel does. And, and, and Jesus didn't just do that for us. He didn't just show us, hey, hey I loved you when you were an enemy to me. In in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter five, part of one of the biggest messages, most important sermons Jesus would preach. In fact, it spans multiple chapters in Matthew's gospel. It's called the Beatitudes, or called the, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was the most important of sermons that Jesus preached. In the middle of that, in Matthew chapter five, verse 46, this is what Jesus calls us to do, the very thing that he had done, that he would do. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, you might be like, well, what's tax collectors have to do with this? Well, tax collectors were some of the most hated, wretched people in society at that time. Uh, we won't talk about how they're seen today, but um, they, they, were, they were hated, they were wretched, they were, they were backwards and, and, and incredibly corrupt. And, and Jesus is saying, if you love those who love you back, like even the worst of the worst do that, and if you greet only your own people, meaning if you greet only the people that look like you, talk like you, dress like you, you know, believe like you, whatever, if you, if you, if you only greet those people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Verse 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, if you read this from a religious perspective, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect sounds like, well, you just set the bar like up here, and I'm down here, and that's never gonna happen. But, but the word perfect there is, is better translated as complete. So if you think of it this way, be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. In other words, it's through the act of loving our enemies, those that are against us or oppose us, that we find our completion. In other words, as you're loving your enemies, as you're loving those who oppose you and and, and attack you or as you, as you love them, you can lean into them, do your best Tom Cruise impersonation and say, you complete me. Try it once. See how that goes. Don't do that. You might, you might get like a bloody nose over that. But, but it's true. In the, in the act of loving our enemies, in the act of, of loving, this is what Jesus is saying, that we actually can be complete, that we experience the fullness of what the gospel is accomplishing in us. Paul later in his letter to the Colossians talks about this completion that we experience in loving our enemies. He, 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 he shares this is the ultimate goal of the gospel. Colossians chapter two, verse nine. He says this, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, meaning Jesus is God in the flesh. Like, if you see Jesus, you saw God. John would write in his gospel, like, this was God in the flesh. They beheld him, they experienced him. He was fully God. In verse 10, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. You've been brought to fullness. Ask any four-year-old, put a cup in front of them, and fill it, uh, tell them you're gonna fill up their cup with Kool-Aid, and fill it up halfway. And, and ask them, is that full? I promise you, that it, they will scream at you. Like, that isn't full. You've only got it half full. What, what, what Paul's writing is that you have a measure of fullness. Like, there's this capacity for your life. And And in our sin, our mistakes, you know what it does? It shrinks down what's, what's in that cup. And in Jesus, he wants to fill it all the way to the top. Yeah, you can experience a measure of fullness, like half full on your own, but you can't experience life to the full, Jesus talks about in John 10, without him, without the gospel at work in your life, without the gospel developing something in your life. And, and this practice of loving those that are difficult and experiencing the completion Christ paid for on the cross might sound really easy to talk about, but it is incredibly difficult to actually do. Like, it, it almost seems impossible to do. You see, I, I, I myself, I've been burned, I've been, I've been stabbed in the back. I've had people I'm trying to love with the love of Christ respond with hate, with anger, with attacks. I, I've had that happen. And, and it stinks. And in those moments, there have been times where I'm tempted to respond accordingly. At times, I have. After all, we're, we're usually told that we should operate with this idea that we fight fire with fire. Like if someone if uh, uh, hates you, well, you should hate them back. That's the only way to get their, their attention. But Jesus has called us to a different way. And not for the sake of being different or, or making life difficult for you, but for the sake of what the gospel of Jesus can develop in you. And what the gospel does in us always calls us to a place of sacrifice where we sacrifice something, we lay something down. You know, as a young leader right out of college, while I believed that we should love those around us, I often felt that those who don't reciprocate that love that I'm trying to show, but instead show me hate, those people don't deserve that love. Like, they don't deserve it. It's like wasting the love of God. It, it wasn't unconditional love that God actually calls us to. It was a love that was conditional and incredibly selfish. Because it was a love based on whether or not that was reflected back to me. And in a lot of ways, it was, a, it was an act of withholding something in the hopes that maybe, maybe withholding would change them. Maybe ho- withholding that love might, might change them uh, from being hateful to, to, to being loving. But I've learned this very important lesson over the years Learning that that approach doesn't work. And that isn't actually what God asks us to do. I've learned this important lesson that focusing on what others do, how they respond, or even if they care at all when I strive to show them God's love, that doesn't do anything good for my own spiritual growth. And if anything, it actually hurts it. I've learned sometimes the hard way that I can't control what others do, but I can control my actions and my reactions. This revelation has shifted my perspective on loving my neighbor, loving others, and even beyond that has shifted how I process trials, difficulties, and times when my expectations aren't met and things happen that I didn't want to happen. I've learned that God has only given me control over myself because I'm the only one that can be responsible for my own spiritual growth. And you are the only one that can be responsible for your spiritual growth. That's not anyone else's responsibility. You can't blame it on this person or that person, how you're raised, or, or your spouse, or your kids, or, or your circumstances, or your situations. That is your responsibility. Not mine, not, not a pastor, not, it's yours. Jesus modeled the same idea in so many ways, but we see it really clearly on his journey toward the cross. The, the compassion he showed through the process of being wrongly accused, whipped to the point of near death, then nailed to a cross, showed a love that wasn't dependent on what others around him were doing or not doing. His love was consistent, and at times, his love even got stronger when the circumstances got worse. Jesus didn't say, love your neighbor, but he modeled that very concept in some of the most difficult times. You know, it would have been one thing if Jesus just came and said, love your neighbor, and then he went back to his cushy estate, and everything was easy and perfect, and he got everything he wanted, and everything just worked out perfectly for him all the time, but he didn't. That's not what happened. He modeled it. He loved people even through difficulty, pain, and attacks, and as is true with most cynical views or responses, there are usually ounces of truth buried in the shell of pain and hurt, And, and the truth here is that haters are just gonna hate. They're gonna hate. That's what they do, I'm, not, I'm sure you've been hated by people and you are trying to love and I can promise you not to be, to, be, to be pessimistic but I can promise you you will continue to be hated by people you're trying to love. That's gonna happen again. But we continue to love in the face of it. Not simply because it, would, it might change them but because it's changing us. It's changing us. This is the activity of this big word that we don't use real often. It's the word Sanctification. Sanctification literally means to set apart for special use or purpose. That is to make holy or sacred. This is what God is wanting to do to you. He's wanting to set you apart for for a holy, sacred purpose. You might be like, I'm not a priest, I'm not a pastor, like God's not called. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the moment that you were shaped and formed in your mother's womb, God was putting you together with a sacred, holy purpose. And sanctification is the process to get us to that, to fulfill that potential. If you've ever had to put an Ikea shelf together, you know like the box is not it. It's the pieces, but it's not a shelf. You got to go through the long, horrible process to put it together, right? Sanctification is the process to put us together, to put us together for that holy, sacred purpose, and some, some believe sanctification happens instantaneously as we commit to follow Jesus, but, but I believe we have a clear uh, picture and pathway in Scripture, evidence in Scripture, and, and the history of Christianity that, that the work of sanctification is really an ongoing work, that we are daily being transformed into the image of Christ. Sanctification is this big word, but essentially it's a concept that encompasses our journey to become more like Christ. Our process to empty ourselves of our fallen human nature and to take on the nature of Jesus. This is what Paul explains to the Corinthian church in 2 in Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, and we all are being, being transformed into Christ's image with ever-increasing glory. Well, what is he talking about? The gospel, the gospel we talk about, isn't about what someone has done for you, but what is being developed in you. We, we think that like following Jesus, being a Christian, experiencing the gospel is like about, like you get a ticket inside the insider's group. Like you're, you're part of the cool kids club. You're, you're, you now have your ticket to heaven. Everything's good. That's not what it's about. Until you breathe your last, God is developing something in you. I don't care if you're 95 or you're 15. God is developing something in you. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't about what was done for you. It's about what he's developing in you. And loving the haters, loving the haters isn't about uh, changing the haters as much as it is about changing you, sanctifying you, completing God's work in you. Like This is what God wants to see happen in your life. Now, before we, we wrap up here today, I want to walk through some of the questions that are texted in, and then we're going to wrap it up uh, here, here this morning. Uh, first question, when it's put here, it says, uh, How do you reconcile God is never changing when there seems to be a huge difference between the God of the Old Testament, that was from, yeah, from the God of the Old Testament, anger and wrath, and the God of the New Testament, love and forgiveness? So, an excellent, excellent question. So, in the Old Testament, you see, uh, if, if, if at face value, two different gods. Like in the Old Testament, you had Sodom and Gomorrah. Like God wiped out a whole city. You had God uh, killing people or, or bringing judgment on people. In the New Testament, you don't see that happening. Like God loves people and he's forgiving people. And, and you're like, well, what, what happened? There's this idea of restraint. And um, if you read the book of Revelation, uh, it says that, that God is restraining his wrath until the last days. What does what's what's that mean? We think of wrath as like rage, like uncontrolled rage. God's wrath is an uncontrolled rage. It's punishment and judgment for what we deserve. And in the New Testament, the difference isn't that God changed. The difference is his wrath, that judgment, goes through this filter of God's grace that was present because of Christ's sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, we, we don't have a good understanding of this, but there's this uh, sacrificial system. Uh, If you really want to, like, you have trouble going to sleep at night, read the book of Leviticus. You know, as many chapters as you can get through, and I mean, it puts you out. I mean, within two or three chapters, guaranteed. Good prescription, okay? Um, Leviticus basically outlines the Levitical law, the law of the law of God for the Jews, and and had this whole sacrificial system. So what that sacrificial system meant was every time you sinned, every time you messed up, every time you did something wrong. to make up for it, you had to go sacrifice an animal or, or offer a sacrifice on the altar at the tabernacle or the temple. And you had to atone or, or, or basically a, um, cover that sin with that sacrifice, that there must be a sacrifice. There had to be death to cover our sin. Well, when Jesus came, this is what's remarkable. You might be like, why did he even go to the cross? Like, what's the whole deal? Well, this is the deal. Jesus came and he died on the cross, not just so we can hang crosses in a church, He died on the cross because he was the sacrifice. Well, Jews, they had to sacrifice constantly. Well, Jesus was a sinless, perfect sacrifice, meaning he never made a mistake. He never messed up. he he, had never sinned. And as that perfect sacrifice, God literally sent his son, God in the flesh, to be the sacrifice. So God was on both ends. So the same God that you see wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah, the same God that seems angry and and full of rage, he sends the solution to that judgment. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. Why? We read it earlier in John 3, 16. For God so loved. God loved the world. God loved the world in the Old Testament too. Read read his interaction with Abraham, with Moses. If you read even in Abraham, um, uh, uh, God is gonna wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah And Abraham is pleading with him to save a few more. And each time God relents and he saves a few more and and God ends up saving Abram's, uh, his nephew Lot. Why? Because God loves people. He loved people in the Old Testament. The problem is there's a consequence. If there's no consequence, then the actions don't matter. There has to be a consequence. So there's a consequence. Well, that consequence is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. So you see uh, at face value, It might look like there's two different gods, but God's love was constant from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation. His love hasn't changed and his character hasn't changed. What's changed is the fulfillment and how that that, that judgment is satisfied through Christ's sacrifice. Hopefully that answers that question. Um, Next question, what about the Christians that hate in the name of Jesus? How do we differentiate ourselves from these people in the eyes of non-believers who want to lump us all together? That is a really good question. That's a tough one. Um, how, how, how do we differentiate ourselves? Um, do we just wear, like, different color shirts? Um, like, do we all wear red sweatsuits? And everyone in the red sweatsuits, those are the good ones? Is that, is that how this works? Like, we're not some cult, okay? So what, what does it mean? How we differentiate ourselves isn't to try to differentiate ourselves. It's to simply allow our measure, our standard to be Jesus, not what everyone else is doing. Um, just because people in the name of Jesus who carry the title of Christian may be incredibly hateful. I mean, I've, uh, you've seen these. Uh, people who in the name of Jesus will go and protest at a, at a funeral or, or at a cemetery. Like, that, I'm sorry, but when I read the Bible and the gospels, I don't think I could ever see Jesus doing that, okay? Just because people are doing that in the name of Jesus doesn't make it uh, Christian. And people will label you. They label me based on those broad strokes of what you see in culture and, and the stereotype that is present. And, and you, you know this better than any of us in the workplace in school in your neighborhood. There is a strong stereotype that Christians are hateful, vengeful, uh, mean—all of that. I'm um, just, you know, watch Dana Carvey and you know the the church lady. Uh, like that's that's the stereotype. If you don't know what that is, you can YouTube it. I'm probably too old for this, but. Um, I'm sure it's on TikTok somewhere. Um, (laughs) But like, that's a stereotype. The only way to change a stereotype, uh, unless you have, you know, a million followers on, on Instagram or something, the only way to change the stereotype is to change it for the person in front of you. You can't change what society thinks about Christians. You can't change what people have done in the name of Jesus that are wrong and hateful. What you can do is you can model the gospel and love the neighbor next to you you can love that person in front of you. Maybe they have a wrong view of Christians because they've been hurt and burned and, and attacked or, or whatever. You can't change what they've experienced. You can't change what they have felt. What you can change is what they experience from you. Like I said earlier, you and you alone are responsible for you. And I and I alone am responsible for me. I don't know if that was the right grammar. Heidi will fix me, correct me later. But you get what I'm saying. Like, We can't be responsible for someone else's actions or what someone else has done. We also aren't responsible to start a whole marketing campaign for Buddy Jesus where, you know, everyone just loves Jesus. That's not our responsibility. We are simply called and placed on this earth to love the people through the love of God, to show them the gospel that we are fallen, broken people, but God loves us and can redeem us and transform us and the big word, sanctify us. We are only responsible to do that for the people in our sphere of influence. Now that sphere of influence might be your coworkers, that might be uh, uh, people that you lead on your team, that might be you know uh, customers or, or, or patients or people that come in front of you, that might even be you know people you follow on Facebook or, or Instagram or wherever. Like that's your, your sphere of influence. You can only be responsible for that. You can't be responsible for everyone else. The, the challenge of our world is we feel the responsibility of all of it on our shoulders all the time. There's a war happening in Ukraine. There's, there's famine in Africa. There's, there's, there's this happening and this injustice and that, and that. And and we are overwhelmed with all the wrong and the injustice in our world. And if you're not careful, your anxiety will go through the roof and you feel so overwhelmed that you, you don't do anything. You're paralyzed by it. We're not responsible for all that. D-d-d- can we do something about some of it? Yes, of course. But we're not responsible to fix every problem in our world. All that God holds us responsible for he, Jesus didn't say, love all the neighbors in the world. Love all the neighbors in the world. He said, love your neighbor. All we're held responsible for is those who are in close proximity to us. And, 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 and in doing that, you might not change the, how the whole world views Christians, but you can at least change how one person views Christ. You know, the, the famous quote from, it's uh, at least attributed to, uh, to Gandhi, I don't know if it actually, he actually said it. I wasn't sitting there listening to him, but um, it's at least attributed to him. He said, uh, I love your Christ, but I, I don't like your Christians because they look nothing like your Christ. And uh, that, that quote is so telling. You can't change how people view or perceive things outside of how you respond and how you act. So hopefully that, that answers that question. We'll hit one more question here. Um, does the church as a collective whole, need to take the blame for those leaving the church and walking away from their faith because of their rampant hypocrisy and teaching of false doctrine which condemns others instead of loving them. What would Jesus say or do about the wave of Christian nationalism that is so prevalent in America and in politics today? Stink, that's a loaded question. Um, Let's see here. (laughs) The first question, let me hit the first one first. So, uh, does the church as a collective whole need to take blame for those leaving the church and walking away from their faith because of the rampant hypocrisy and teaching of false doctrine, which condemns others instead of loving them? Um, I think there is uh, always a level of responsibility that the church capital C takes. Um, but like I said earlier, like we aren't responsible for fixing that. We are held responsible for fixing what, what's in our sphere of ability. So to uh, publicly or take all the responsibility on that, all that blame, um, there's a measure of humility and uh, selflessness that that brings, and I think that's healthy. But to feel like we have to make up for it is us feeling like we have to do the work of Jesus on our own. Our calling is to reflect Jesus and to to forgive and to 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 recognize um, our calling to show the gospel to people who need it, meaning not to to evangelize in the sense of like we 're just here to get notches on our belt so we get more people praying some prayer or we get more people um, you know committing to the church or something that's not that 's not what Jesus died for he died. For, for people to be developed into christ's image to be sanctified to be transformed to be changed that God meets us where we are but he helps us grow and develop to what we could be um, there is a lot of pain and there's a lot of uh, of hurt that has happened and there's movements of of church hurt and, and there's a lot of documentaries maybe you 've seen them i've watched most of them about church hurt that's happened even in the last you know few years and and pastors and prominent uh, evangelists and 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 larger churches or congregations that have hurt a lot of people. And there's, there's kind of this church hurt movement. And, and I know that's real. And I know that's happened. Um, but if we're not careful, we can end up chasing, chasing uh, the path of trying to make that right and missing our actual purpose. Which That's not our purpose. Our mission isn't to fix what other churches have broken. Our mission is to to go and make disciples of all nations. Like that's our mission. And if we're not careful, we can allow our mission to shift where we're just trying to fix what other people have broken. And, and, and on top of that, fixing what other people have broken is saying that we've got the corner on the market. Like we're not perfect. If you're new here, this church isn't perfect. I'm not, per- we're not perfect. We're just trying to figure this out as we go. And I think there's a level of humility that says, hey, we don't have the corner of the market. We're figuring this out as we go. We have a strong faith and trust that God is good, that he is faithful, and we're gonna continue to follow his word and what he asks us to do. And does that mean that we have to fix what everything else is broken? Not necessarily. We can fix what we can in front of us. So I don't know if that answers that question. The other one, this is a loaded one. We'll... uh, hit this here. <clears throat> what would Jesus say or do about the wave of Christian nationalism that is so prevalent in America and in politics today? So what Jesus would say or do, like wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was alive in 2023 and could answer that question? What's really awesome is he was alive and he was alive at a time uh, and when this also happened, the first century, uh, there was a, uh, a strong uh, perspective that uh, the Messiah, which was uh, the Jewish deliverer. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter three, the first mention you see of the Messiah, of any hint at the Messiah, and throughout the Old Testament, there's this thread woven throughout the Old Testament, all 39 books, uh, that there was a Messiah coming. And, and this Messiah was gonna be a big deal. And, and, and Jews didn't know what the Messiah would look like or what it would, what, what, how that would unfold or how that would happen, but they held strongly to this promise of Messiah. And the Messiah was essentially a deliverer, one that was going to deliver them. Now, what they thought was that their deliverer was going to come and bring freedom to them through military means and bring about the Israel that they'd always dreamed of, uh, that they were going to bring Israel into its fullness. Like, the dream of Israel would finally become a reality because the Messiah would come. And, and, and then you get to, to, the, to the New Testament. And, and it, just to, you know, be a, a, um, uh, ruin the story for you and kind of uh, tell you how it ends, Jesus didn't do that. Like, that was what was so confusing to them. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, uh, uh, James and John, like, his, their, their mother comes to Jesus and asks, like when you set up your kingdom, when you like become the emperor of them all, can, you, can my sons sit at your right and left hand? Like can they be your second and third in charge, in command? And Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're asking. Like you, you have no idea what you're saying. That's, that's not what I'm doing. Because Jesus didn't come to establish a physical kingdom. What that means is, Christian nationalism in any country, not just America, in Israel in the first century, was present, that's not, those two misunderstand what Christianity is about. It's a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus and what Jesus came to establish. Jesus didn't come to establish a physical country that has physical boundaries. He came to establish the kingdom of God which has no boundaries and is bound by the hearts of men and women, not by the physical boundaries that we put in place. So, a country isn't Christian, Uh, Just like your car isn't Christian, and your house isn't Christian, people are followers of Jesus. Christian literally means little Christs, that we are Christ-extended into this world, okay? So so, uh, the idea of Christian nationalism, I think Jesus would say pretty much what he said in the first century, which is, I didn't come to set up a kingdom, I didn't come to set up a country. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's still what he does. 2,000 years later, isn't it amazing that one, that, that, that kingdom is still advancing and two, we're still facing the same problems. 2,000 years of human development and advancement and we're still facing the same things. Christian nationalism isn't something that just started uh, and became an issue or a thing in the last few years. Like it's always been there in different countries, not just America, uh, and, and my challenge and encouragement to you, even as we look at uh, a year coming up where uh, the political cycle is going to ramp up and, and things will get interesting and crazy, and, and we'll see what happens, um, is Jesus and what he teaches and what we read in the Bible isn't dependent on any political outcome. Any political outcome. Zero. Like, God is still God when a dictator rules a country in the middle east or or south america god is still god when the right political parties in the in congress or the right political parties in uh, the white house like god is still god and our view of christ and his work in our world isn't dependent on a country our country looking a certain way it's dependent on what he did 2000 years ago we, we, we remembered it earlier in communion. What Jesus did on the cross, nothing's changing that. It's still applicable, it's still relevant, and it's still important for us to remember. And, and so my challenge to you is remember your priorities. When it comes to, to Christian nationalism, usually what happens is our priorities, we, we, put, we think that uh, if, if the right legislation or the right people are in power, it can help bring about a country that represents Jesus well. And, and there is some measure to that. I'm not denying that. But that's not our goal. You can't legislate morality and you can't legislate salvation. And you definitely can't legislate sanctification. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Only the Holy Spirit can transform us and change us from the inside out. And our role, our responsibility there's a responsibility to vote. I love America I love living in America. I'm proud. I'm not gonna sing, proud to be American. You would you know, not be proud in this moment of your pastor. But um, I'm, I'm proud of that. But in the end, my salvation isn't dependent and hinging on that. My salvation is hinging on what Jesus did on the cross. And uh, if we get our priorities out of whack, we can put the political uh, uh, aim or the political measures or, or the political path at a higher priority than what God has called us to and what he's asked of us. And when it comes to loving your neighbor, loving those who are different than us, I've watched too many people who are followers of Jesus sacrifice that for the sake of this. And nothing should sacrifice this. Jesus stood in the face of his own uh, uh, murderers the very people that would execute him, he was able to stand in the face of that and say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they were doing. Wow, that's crazy. That's the Jesus we're talking about. That's the love that he's called us to show. That is a deep, rich, mind-blowing love. That's what he's called us to, 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 to love with. And that doesn't fit any boundary that doesn't fit any political party or any country for that matter. The kingdom of God is measured in the hearts of men and women, not in the boundaries of, uh, of, of countries or world, the world that we set up. Um, with that said, I wanna invite the worship team up. We're gonna wrap up here. And uh, n- next week, next week we're gonna be talking about that God is selfish and uh, the idea of worship. And, and worship can sound really weird uh, if you don't understand it. Um, but as we close... As we close, we wrap up today. Here's what I want to ask you. What is God developing in you? How is he calling you to love? And who is he calling you to love? Not, Not with the expectation that your love will change them because the truth is it might change them, but it very well may not. I promise you that the act of following Christ's example of loving others regardless of how others respond, I promise you it will radically change you that you will be a different person when you're willing to love like Jesus loved. When you're willing to not just love your neighbor that loves you back, but you're even willing to love your enemies. And he goes on, he says, and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. See, the gospel isn't about what someone has done for you, but what is being developed in you. And before we go, I I wanna ask you to stand. And... God is developing something in you. Those of you watching in the shelters and watching online, God is developing something in you. I I know it. Maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you walked into church today and your your, your mind wasn't there, your perspective, like you're not looking about what God's developing in you. But I promise you, this is part of your journey, just you being here today. And God is developing something in you. And in, in the book of Hebrews, we read that, that it says, don't neglect the gathering together. Don't neglect getting together. He's speaking, the the, the author of Hebrews is writing to the church. Don't neglect getting together, why? And he said, because you getting together, you gathering together will spur, you'll spur each other on toward love and good deeds. We challenge each other, that there's something that happens in community that pushes us, that helps us grow and develop. What is it? It's the love of God that is being shown even through disagreements, even, even when people are different than us. And here's what I wanna do before we close. I wanna pray. And I wanna pray some high priestly prayer over you. I want us to pray for each other. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take the hand of the people next to you. We're not gonna get weird or awkward here. If you're in an aisle, you can do that. If you're watching in one of the shelters, you can do that. If you're at home, take your own hand, I guess. Um, I want you to take a hand of the people next to you. I'm gonna pray, and I want you, whether you know their name or not, you might not know them, I want you to pray for the people next to you that God would help them love those that are difficult to love. Because we all have people in our world, we all have people in our lives that are difficult to love. And we all have different obstacles, but we all struggle with that. It's a human struggle. And, and, And we're in this together. We're not, we're not on our own, like, man, I gotta make it through. I gotta love like God called me to love. I gotta make it through this. Like, God is developing something in me. That's awesome. But no, we're in this together. We don't do this in isolation or separate from each other. So as we pray, I want you to pray for the person on your right and left, whether you know their name or not. And, and, and then we're gonna wrap up, all right? God, I thank you so much. You can continue to start praying for those next to you. Lord, I, I thank you for the love that you've called us to. I thank you, Lord, for how you're moving in us and through us. God, I thank you for the gospel that we talked about today that you so loved the world that you gave. Lord, not just to to change the world at large, but to change us, to transform us, to help us grow into the fullness of what you made us to be. God, I pray for those on our right and left that we're praying for right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd begin to challenge. God, you give us boldness and courage, Lord, to step out and to do the impossible, to do the unlikely, Lord, to do the difficult. God, that as a church, we aren't those who shrink back in the face of obstacles, that we aren't those who shrink back when things get difficult, but God, we lean in because we serve a God that doesn't shrink back. We serve a God that doesn't give up. We, don't, we serve a God, Lord, that never gives up on anyone. We thank you for that. And God, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would use us this week in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in the grocery store, wherever we go. I pray you would use us, Lord, to be, God, catalysts of change, Lord. You would use us to be, Lord, conduits of your love. Lord, those who have been hurt, those who have been broken, those who have been abused by people in the church, God, I pray we can't change that and we can't change what's happened to them or what they've experienced. But God, I pray you would bring them into the paths of those in this room, the paths of those watching today. I pray you'd bring them into our path. Lord, that we could at least begin to to give them another perspective that that there are people who are following Jesus that genuinely love others with the sacrificial, selfless love of God. God, use us. Use us to change our world. We might not be able to change the world, But God, use this to change our world, the world around us. God, for those who really question whether this Christianity thing, this Jesus thing is even real, God, I pray today that they would experience the true, genuine love of Jesus. Not some religious thing, not some manufactured thing, not something that we just talk about but don't show. But God, I pray that they would experience the genuine, true love of God that has the potential to change us at the core. To soften even the hardest of hearts to mend the most broken of lives. God, work in us and through us, I pray. Thank you for loving us and not giving up on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is Pastor Nick Paul, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.